Our scripture reading today comes from Mark 10, 32 through 45. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. The disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the 12 aside them and told him what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said. The son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him, spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You do not know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with this baptism I am baptized with, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentile lord it over them, and the high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as ransom for many. Amen. Good morning, everybody. Great to be with you. Uh, Whether you're just here for the first time or you're joining us on the podcast today, in two weeks from today, we'll be beginning a brand new series called For Unto Us, and it's going to be a look at the promise of Christmas in the book of Isaiah, and I'm excited about starting that with you. But today and next week, we'll be finishing today and next week, our series called Gratitude, and we're talking about, been talking about, how we can move from not just feeling grateful, feeling gratitude, but to actually expressing gratitude. And we're talking about that today again. And we've said that many times what determines actually the very future of our relationships and maybe even our church is our ability to move from not just feeling grateful, but to expressing gratitude. And this this concept is so important. And so I want to talk about one of the main things, if not the main thing, that I believe that keeps us not only from just expressing gratitude, but from sometimes even feeling gratitude in the first place. And so in a minute, I want to begin to unpack a word that I think for many of us can be the real joy robber. And that word is the real joy killer. It's the relationship strangler. And so before I get to that word, I want to sort of set up the scene here. That's going to help us get to that word in a minute. So let's just ask, well, what's going on here in this passage? Well, here you can see in Mark chapter 10, Jesus, if you know the story, he's coming to the end of his ministry. He's heading more or less toward the end of his life and heading towards the city of Jerusalem for the last time. And he knows that once he arrives there, things are going to be set into motion that'll bring about his arrest, his torture, his execution. And as he's on the way here in Mark 10, he's trying to prepare his disciples for the likely 
brutal scene that they're going to witness once they get there. He's been with them, with his disciples for roughly three years. He's labored with them. He's loved them. He's taught them. He's invested in them. And now he's trying to prepare them for what lies ahead. And the reason he's trying to give them some perspective is because Jesus knows as they enter the city, it's likely going to be actually overwhelmingly positive at first because with the common person Jesus has become extraordinarily popular he's loved them he's healed them he stood up against injustice he's condemned corrupt power structures he's fought for what's right he's spent time with them the people love them and so Jesus is saying to his disciples now listen they may love us at first but sooner or later it's going to turn against us And as he's describing to them what they can expect, his being spit upon, tried, put to death, it becomes really clear his disciples aren't getting it. Because two of them, James and John, they're mentioned by name, they brush aside his words, they kind of saddle up next to him, and incredibly, they launch into this totally different conversation. Uh, In effect, they're kind of saying, you know, Jesus... Sorry, you know, tough luck about that death part. That sounds really hard. Doesn't sound very pleasant. You're you're always kind of saying stuff we don't understand anyway. Maybe this is one of those times too, you know. But here's what we do get. We get your important and it looks like you're going places. So again, sorry about that execution part. What we want to know is when you become king, because that's what the people are calling you, can you give us what we want? We want to be on your right. We want to be on your left and be the most important people among your people. You're important. And so we want to be important too. And the account tells us, this is almost supposed to be funny, that the other disciples discerned. Uh, They became indignant, the word is. Uh, They became indignant because they discerned, and here's what they discerned, here's the word, here's the thing that's the real joy killer, the relationship robber, the gratitude strangler. The other disciples discern James and John's, here's the word, entitlement. 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 James and John are thinking they deserve power, right? They deserve a position. They deserve recognition. They felt entitled to a position of power at the same moment. Jesus is talking about his death. Now, can you just grasp the depth of insensitivity here? I mean, can you see the total lack of empathy, lack of self-awareness, lack of relational IQ, whatever you want to call it, because they're talking about what they think they deserve at the exact moment Jesus is talking about his own suffering and death. So Jesus responds, essentially, all right, fellas, time out again, right? Let's talk about this. He says, you know how the Gentile rulers act, uh, the ones who call themselves lords, who are called lords, the ones who have that position of authority, you know, they lord their authority over others, you know how they're always making people do what they want, you know how they're always talking about how they can hire and fire people at will and at whim, you know, those kind of people, and the disciples are like, 
Yeah, we do. Because that's kind of who we want to be, Jesus. You know, because we've been on the outskirts of power. We've been on the margins of society and politics. The old party appears to be on the way out with you. Now our time has come. Now that you're coming into Jerusalem. I mean, Jesus, have you paid attention? The whole getting our party in power thing is kind of why we're hanging with you. But Jesus says, not so. Not with you. Not with my followers. If the day comes that you actually get authority, if the day comes you actually get influence, if the day comes you get to be in a position of power and you have resources, you must not use what you have like everybody else. Everyone else uses what they have for the benefit of themselves. But Jesus is saying, my kingdom doesn't work like that. You think you have to, that to have influence, you must accumulate power. But Jesus here is saying, you got to do something else with it. You must use what you have differently. Differently. What's Jesus teaching us here? Three things I hope to unpack for us. First, we're going to see he's untangling our entitlement. Two, he's modeling a very real kind of power. And three, thankfully, he's also, for us, creating a culture. Let's begin. Number one. And I'll begin here, number one, uh, by actually name dropping. You're welcome. Uh, I've got a friend. His name is Dr. Tim Elmore, written like 36 or so books, but who's counting on youth and teens. Uh, And he's got a book called Generation IY. And Dr. Elmore says that the word that most cultural anthropologists use to describe the sort of 18 to 30-year-old demographic set age group in our nation is the word entitled. That's the word. word. As a matter of fact, if you're a parent of a teenager today, you're thinking, aha, yes, that's what that is. That's the word I was looking for. They always think they deserve the newest, shiniest, most upgraded thing on the market today, no matter how expensive it is for you, just because they continue to breathe. Just because they woke up in your house yet again today. But I don't want to be too hard on the 18 to 30 year old crowd. Uh, because I actually think that mindset applies to actually our whole nation. Our nation as a whole today. Our, our whole national mindset. Because we've become a nation uh, with a mindset that feels massively entitled to everything. What do I mean? I mean, uh, instead of just, actually, instead of giving you a definition, I like to give you a description. And I mean for you to laugh at it a bit, if you wouldn't mind. Entitlement looks like this. Entitlement looks like, here's the word picture, entitlement looks like the annual church Easter egg hunt. That's right. And sometimes we have them here, sometimes we don't. But just about all of us have been to an Easter egg hunt, either in our home or our neighborhood as a parent or a volunteer or a guest or a kid. And what happens? Well, you go out to the field, right? Or to the space or the house or the, the big area. And there are hundreds of eggs, you know, all over the place. Some are on top of rocks or on top of fence posts. Uh, some are just right there, you know, two feet out beyond the starting line. So your two-year-old can't miss it. So they get at least one egg. And all the kids are holding their sacks and their baskets or their homemade pillowcases. And then the gun goes off and the ribbons cut. And then you know what's about to go down you know that what's about to go down is a massive, 
case study in social Darwinism. I mean, it's just survival of the fittest, right? I mean, the big kids, they they shoot out to the early lead, they elbow the little kids out of the way, and they grab as many as they can in an effort to see who gets what. Yes, the most, the most eggs. And little Susie's crying because just as she was walking up to her perfect egg, her mom put for her there, the 10-year-old fifth grader just sort of comes through and boom, you know, knocks her out of the way like the office linebacker, you know, decletes her and she's crying and takes her egg. And at the end of it, the big kids are feeling like they won Olympic gold because they got their first and fastest and got their record haul of chocolate. The little kids are crying. Uh, the, the parents of the little kids are mad at the parents of the big kids, right? Because the big kids got all the eggs and the, the, the parents fall, of course, even though all the parents just said, hey, get out there and try to see if you can get all that you can. Right, is to get as many as you can, and the parents are mad at each other because they're thinking, after all, I got here early to set this up. Your kid's just a guest. He's only here because it's Easter. I come here all the time. You don't come here every week. Your kid doesn't deserve the Easter eggs, but my kids do. What's that? That's entitlement, right? Now that's just in the church. What about what's coming up later this month in America, right? The day after Thanksgiving sale, the day where we all express our gratitude for God by getting up early and spending lots of money at stores, right? Otherwise known as Black Friday. And, and there's a couple ends of this spectrum, you know, scene number one, you've got like 400 women with their faces pressed up against the glass, fighting over like 22 blouses or shirts or whatever. And, you know, the doors are open and the people just behind the ones in front are the ones who get trampled. So don't be those people if you're going to go. It's the front or the back. Thank you. Right. If you're going to survive. And, but the people get trampled. 911 is called. The people who get the blouses are feeling good, right? Because they got there early. They got there first and they deserve that, you know, 40% off discount. The ones who didn't get it are mad. They feel like they really deserved the discount because they stood in line too. Because, you know, they've been in line since like the 4th of July, apparently. One lady's mad because she stepped out to get her friend coffee. But, oh, her friend went in front of her into the store because they opened the door five minutes early and she missed the deal. Right. What's that? Entitlement. You know, or fellas on the other end, there's like the 70 inch gigantitron or whatever it is on sale for how, how many hundreds of dollars. And you've been lifting weights and pounding protein shakes, plus the extra help in a pie you had last night to get you through to get the beef and the heft you needed to stand in line and claim your territory. So you can get that TV, but you get there and guess what? It's gone before you can even get there. And you're so mad when that guy turns to look at surround sounds, you take his TV out of the card because you deserved it. That's a war of entitlement. Now, if you're, say, a Christian, (laughs) could you imagine Jesus walking into Walmart or Target or Macy's or someplace, looking at a mad scramble for televisions or t-shirts. I mean, what would he say? What would he think? Or what would be even weirder is if Jesus walked into a church's Easter egg hunt. I mean, he's like, seriously, I rise from the dead. And the way you celebrate and tell the world is by putting chocolate into eggs and then fight about whose kid gets the most. Oof. Oh, wait. Now, how 
would Jesus sort all of this out? I mean, would he apply like the wisdom of Solomon to the situation and just sort of cut the TV in half to see <laughs> whose TV it really ought to have been? I mean, how would Jesus determine these things? How would he determine who gets the most, the stuff? How would he sort through who gets what and how much and why? Well, today, here's my answer. If you're a Christian, if you claim to follow Jesus, let me tell you, I believe Jesus could not be any clearer about what he would do. He would walk into any environment, in any department store, Easter egg hunt, any conversation about who gets what, about what's fair, about what you're owed, about what the government owes you, about how much you deserve to keep for you, yourself, and your, and your folk. What's fair for you to have, what's fair for those people to have or not have. And he would say, you work all that out. Let the dust settle. The election finished, the smoke clear, and once everybody's got their entitlement stakes in the ground, what they think they're supposed to have or those people aren't supposed to have, once they've got them in the ground, I believe he'd say, invite me into the conversation because I've got something not just to say to you, but actually to ask of you, ask you. And here's what I believe Jesus would ask, because it's essentially the same thing he asked his disciples in this passage. He's asking them, he's saying, now that you've put out there what you want, that position, that thing, whatever it is you want, here's the question. He's asking them, what are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with it? You've got authority. Maybe you deserve it. Maybe you don't. But what are you going to do with it? Maybe you think you deserve, you're entitled to way more than you're getting. Maybe you are, maybe you're not, but what are you going to do with what you have right now? Here's the question. What are you going to do with what you claim is yours? Jesus is saying here, it's a little hard. He's saying, I don't really care, fellas, about what you feel like you're entitled to, about how hard you've worked, how you've stayed with me these years, what you think is just what you deserve. He says, I care about what you're going to do with what you have when you do have it. Right now, see, he's just untangling our entitlement. So I'll say to you, so what if you were the fastest one to get all your Easter eggs in life. So what? So what if you started with none and you work to where you are now? What are you going to do with the eggs that you do have? See, the question boils down to really not who deserves what, but what are you going to do with what you have right now today? And listen, if you and me, if we, if the church of Jesus could just get this right, if we could just answer this question rightly and effectively, we could change the world. I mean, it would change the reputation of the church and therefore it would change maybe your, your reputation at work, the reputation of the church and the community. And this isn't even complicated. It's just basic Christian teaching. Did you know, in the first three centuries after the resurrection of Christ, the first Christ followers who had nothing, no power, no party representing them, they overturned the Roman Empire from the inside out. How could they do that? How could they do that? Because they got this. They understood it. They grasped it. And they understood that not just Jesus was doing this, number one, but that he was also modeling something for them, which is number two. He was modeling what real power, what real authority, what real leadership is. 
say, well, how's that? Well, let's set this up by just asking another question. It's the right one to ask, I think. What did, after all, Jesus do with what he had? With what he had. And to answer that, I want to fast forward a bit to the end of our story, chronologically a bit. Because now Jesus and his disciples are on the other end of their trip to Jerusalem. They've arrived. And the citizens there did. Jesus was right. They threw him the equivalent of the Macy's Thanksgiving Day ticker tape World Series Chicago Cubs parade. I mean, the parade, the end all parades. And now, after the parade, it's the night of the Passover in, cha- in the book of John, chapter 13, in the night of the Passover, the f- Passover festival is the night the Jewish people celebrated and st- still celebrate God's deliverance of their forefathers from slavery. Jesus is having the Passover meal with his disciples and something here in this chapter, in this space, in this time, something extraordinary is about to take place. Let's look at it. Chapter 13, verse 1 it says it was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And what you're about to read is that John here, because he was there and he saw this, he is about to tell us that in some new way, maybe in a way that Jesus Christ had never fully realized or grasped before, Jesus knew something. Because the meal is taking place, the disciples are around him, they're talking, they're conversing in the middle of all the noise and the stuff. Something settles in the soul of the Son of God. He sees something in a way he never has before. What was it? Let's look. Verse 2, it says, the evening meal was in progress. The devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Verse 3, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. Oh, it's so simple. But it's so profound. Here's what Jesus sees. He sees what he has and who he is in a fresh light. He sees his resources in a fresh light. He is overwhelmed with the awareness of who he is and what he has. He grasped fully, maybe for the first time, that God had placed all things under his power. He doesn't just understand he's the most powerful person in the room. He doesn't just understand he's the most powerful person in the city or the world. He grasps he is the most powerful and important person in the universe. He's got it all. He's got his father's love. He's got his father's riches, his father's trust, his father's affirmation, power. I mean, could you imagine what it would be like to be Jesus in this moment? I mean, what do you do when you realize this? That not only are you the most important and powerful person in the world, but at that moment, just down the street, is an incredibly small-minded and petty and vengeful group of people plotting to take your life. Hmm? What do you do when you realize that not only you are the most important, powerful, holy, loving person in the world, but you realize there's also a person in the room with you? just seats away, who's also planning to betray you at that moment. What do you do? What's your move? Hmm? What will you decide to do when you realize you are actually entitled by God to everything? 
Everything. It's all in your hands. You deserve it all. Hmm? What will you do with everything that's yours? And what's coming next may be the most important word in the Bible. Because I believe history changed. History hinges on this word. It's the word so. 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 It means as a result of his awareness. In response to his legitimate entitlement. In answer to the question, what do I do with what I have? Jesus does this. Look, it says, so. Jesus got up, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. He got up, you think, okay, big deal, you know, his foot fell asleep, he had to stretch his legs. No, it was at this moment the disciples realized something extraordinary was happening because Jesus was sitting in the seat of honor, the most important seat in the room at the table. The guest of honor didn't get up. The guest of honor never got up. The guest of honor stayed seated and everyone else served him. And Jesus here, he, oh, he's ripping to shreds bit by bit every cultural custom, everything that props up how important someone's supposed to be. And he doesn't just stop there. It says he took off his outer clothing. See, Jesus was a rabbi. His outer clothing, his garment was the thing that showed others how important that he was. And he replaced that with what? A towel. A servant's towel. Indicating he's about to wash their feet. He's about to do the menial, the menial and humiliating task of the lowest person in the household. I mean, could you imagine the room? Emotions have got to be swirling. Jesus is gone from the top to the bottom like that. No one knows what to think. I mean, they're thinking, I mean, should we have hired someone to do this? You know, you know, you know, Andrew, you know, Philip, I knew this was your job. You forgot to hire the person. Should one of them be doing it themselves? Peter says, no way, you're not going to do this. I mean, it's chaos, but Jesus does it anyway. In the same hands that healed the sick, cast out demons, raised the dead, brought a little girl back to life, are about to go around and wash 12 sets of entitled men's feet. Yeah. Jesus goes around the room and washes the feet that are covered with the residue of animal droppings, dust, grime, sweat. I mean, do you know Can you see what Jesus, your Savior, our Savior did the moment he realized everything was his? The moment he realized he was on top and he deserved it. I mean, this is actually the right question to ask. Do you see what's going on? Because it's the same question Jesus asks his disciples. Look at this, verse 12. Because he finished, he put his clothes back on and asked them, Do you understand? What I have done for you, he asked him. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that's what I am. In other words, he's saying, I am entitled to being called all that and more. You ought to call me those things. He's saying, it's not in dispute. I'm your teacher and Lord. He doesn't dispute his level of entitlement. But he says, do you understand what I've done? And he says this, now that I your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. 
I have done for you. It's amazing. Jesus could not have made it any clearer for us or for them. I mean, he shows us what to do with what we have because the question isn't, what am I entitled to? What am I entitled to have or keep? What is that person? What does that government owe me? You may be entitled to those things. That's not in dispute. The question is, what will you and I, what will we do with what we have today? Jesus is giving us a new definition of power. A new way to use leadership and authority. He's saying, I'm Lord, I'm master, I'm entitled to every blessing my Father in heaven can give me. So what am I going to do with it? I'm going to use what I have to bless you. you. And in doing so, number three, he thankfully creates a culture for us. Culture for us. Number three. I love this. Jesus, he basically ends this whole scene with, you know, his own version of a mic drop here. Because after he finishes washing their feet, then he says, now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Do them. Not, you'll be really blessed if you sit around and talk about it in a small group. Not, you'll be blessed if you analyze the words and look them up in Greek. He says, you'll be blessed if you do them. Oh, it's beautiful. What's amazing about this is that Jesus gives us right here what to do next when we don't know what to do next. And when we don't know what's coming next in life, he gives us a path forward. When you are insecure, when I'm insecure about any direction in life, I've still got a move. Listen, you've still got an ace in the hole. You've got an unbeatable move in your back pocket when it comes to any area of your life. Any roadblock in a relationship, when it's complicated and messy, when it doesn't feel good, what can you do? You can do this. John 13. John 13. Laying down whatever you feel like you're owed and serve. See, laying down the very justifiable thing we all feel we're entitled to is the way forward in any difficult relationship. In your business, for example, business people, can you do this? I mean, maybe, maybe you're entitled to give less than your best because no one else really shows up and gives their best. I mean, it's a stinky dead-end job. No one else cares. They all show up late, leave early. You're the only one busting your tail. You deserve to not show up and work hard. Maybe so. Or maybe, maybe on the other hand, your boss has treated you unfairly and he doesn't deserve you. He probably doesn't. She probably doesn't. What are you going to do with what you're entitled to? In your marriage, men, maybe your wife has said something to you that's just shattered your heart, your emotions, your relationship. And, you know, she doesn't deserve you. Maybe not. You're entitled to some respect. Maybe you are. What are you going to do about it? Women, maybe your husband demands, you know, he quotes the Bible and demands he submits, you know, you submit to him while he ignores the verse right before it about both of you guys submitting to each other. Maybe that's happening. Maybe he cares more about a dumb game on TV than about you. And you're entitled to more love than you're getting because he promised he'd give it. What are you going to do with what you're entitled to? Maybe you've got a roommate. Maybe you're someone with a a sibling, a brother and sister. They don't treat you right. You're entitled to them treating you better. What are you going to do about it? Maybe you're entitled to be bitter at those people, right? Hold a grudge at them. Maybe you really are. What are you going to do with it? 
Maybe times are tough. It's hard for you to give financially because get, man, stuff is so tight. You can't give financially to ministry or charity. Or on the other hand, maybe times are real good. And man, your business is booming. And you've worked hard. And you deserve it. Maybe you really do. Maybe either way, you're entitled to keep it. Maybe you say, well, guess what? Maybe here in the church, people don't see me enough. People don't develop me enough. Maybe, maybe not. Hmm? You probably are entitled to more. (laughs) What are you going to do about it? Maybe you're entitled to come week after week and worship and be in God's presence and count on other people making it right and perfect for you before you walk in. Maybe you've worked really hard all week and you're entitled to come and sit again and again. Maybe. Maybe you're entitled to a seat of honor, but what are you going to do with what you're entitled to? Jesus took the lowest place in the room, took the most menial job, gave away his position and said, you'll be blessed, not if you stay seated in the seat of honor, but if you give it all away, if you do for one another what I've done for you. He said, you call me Lord and you ought to. No doubt about that. But he said, I've set you an example. And here's the thing about this example, church, about this kind of culture he's creating. It looks so foolish and it looks so offensive. It looks so foolish because you can imagine them asking, Jesus, why would you ask us to do this? When the country, when our nation's going the way it is, how can washing my friend's feet get the Romans out of power? How's it going to do that, Jesus? It looks offensive. Oh, it looks so offensive and off-putting that Peter balked at it. I mean, Jesus, he says, you shouldn't do this. I'm not going to let you. Here's what I think Peter was thinking. I think he was thinking, if I let Jesus do this for me, what am I going to have to do with these knuckleheads over here? What am I going to have to do for James and John? I mean, aren't they the ones with a sense of entitlement? I mean, Jesus, I mean, aren't I the one who got the whole revelation, the rock of Christ, the thing that you, you know, affirmed me for? I'm the only one who got that. And you say, I've got to wash these guys. See, they can't see how they're coming across to me or to us. And I've got to treat them like that. At this moment, when you could kick out that party out there, you ask us to wash each other's feet in here. Oh, He's saying yes. He's saying you will change, I promise. You'll change the empire out there if you'll love one another in here. Because all men, all people will know you are my disciples when you love one another. And church, we will never change the world out there unless we do the same. Love one another here. And here now, today, is where we've got an extraordinary opportunity. I want to do a couple things with this because I believe we've got an opportunity to be a church that helps break maybe some of the sense of entitlement that all of us can come in here with. We can create the kind of culture we all want to be a part of. And so I'm going to ask you to do something here in just a minute in a way that can help us. But before I get there, I just want to push pause for a minute because I know some of this stuff can be really challenging to hear. And no matter what you're feeling, it's all going to be okay. All going to be okay. If you're feeling excited about waking up tomorrow morning because of something that you heard and, you know, a way forward, you see what you could do, then great. I'm excited for you. Uh, If you're stuck 
in a you know, job or a relational situation that feels hopeless, I would hope that today you'd actually get a sense of hope because you've got an unbeatable move, an ace in the hole you can play when you wake up tomorrow. And for those of you who've never heard something like this before, you don't know what to think, don't know what to feel because you're saying, hey, we started out laughing and then you went super deep, super fast. Where am I now? That's okay. I want to do something here in a minute with what you just heard. What you just heard. We've got an opportunity here this morning for an application of this in a way. And here's what it is. And I hope you'll be excited for it. As you know, we'll be moving in the spring to three services. Excited about that. Don't quite have the date nailed down for that. We'll let you know. Uh, we got a survey coming out this week about some times. So hope you'll fill that out. But to move, to make that move is going to actually require some additional people to help make that happen across our Sunday morning service teams to open up some space for people to meet Jesus, for their children to meet Jesus in a new way. We've got a number of amazing Sunday morning service teams already. A number of you are involved with from our coffee bar to our ushers or our parking lot to our section leaders, the M kids, M youth. And this morning we're looking for between our two services, roughly 90 people to max those out for us to be able to, to enable us to make the move. And so uh, it's funny, by the way, whenever you talk to people, especially about doing children's or youth ministry, different people have different responses. I've come to hear over the years, sometimes single people, single people, you're sitting here thinking, man, serve in M kids. I don't even have kids. Why would I do that? It's like the parent's job. Or if you have kids and you are a parent, you think, surf and M kids, I deal with kids all week in my home. Why would I come here? Let somebody else do it. Or if your kids are grown and you're a grandparent, you think, surf and M kids, I've already raised my kids. Somebody said amen. (laughs) So whose job is it? Listen, fathers, you're here. We... We need you in a number of these areas. And let me just submit to you this thought. It's amazing that you come and you take your kids here. Thank you for doing that. But beyond that, I believe what they need to see is you modeling, you modeling service and time invested in serving your local church. Uh, Mothers, listen, we need your leadership, your gifts, your know-how, all that. Single people, we see you. We love you. You are amazing. Use that millennial sense of confidence (laughs) to confidently serve. So here's what I'd like for us to consider doing today for the church. There's a, if you look in the seat back in front of you, there ought to be, a, I think, a white card with some purple writing on it, purple on the other side. Would you just actually humor me and everybody take this out, even if you're already involved somewhere, you already lead a community group, you're already involved somewhere. Just humor me, grab the card. I promise it won't bite. There's no snakes in church. We don't do that here, not this kind of church. I'd like to ask you just to look at it. Just look at it. And consider checking a box or two in an area you might think you'd just like to know more about what it's about. You don't have to know at all. Now, I know some of you have been through the membership process. You haven't quite gotten the step yet. Uh, That's not on you. That's on us. But right now is a moment to fill in that gap and, and make that right. And again, looking for 90 folks or so to max out all those areas in three services. You don't have to know everything. We'll help you with all the info. There's a team member training coming up December 3rd. It's a Saturday morning. We'll get you connected to that, get you going with your starter kit over the next couple of weeks. We'll even have breakfast for you at that team member training. Watch your kids for you. 
because we want to give you the opportunity to help us create the kind of culture we know we all want to be a part of all along. And I believe this is going to be easy this morning. This is an amazing church. And if you're new here, when we close in a minute, I'm going to do it just pretty quickly, really abruptly. Not normally how we do it. Because in a minute, I'm going to pray for you. You can just take that purple card over to the doors with the ushers who are smiling. I think that's it. you, Andy. Come on, Andy. That's you, Josiah over there, smiling. Stephen, Alvin, these are amazing people. They're smiling. They're going to have smiles. No one's going to shake you down. You can just look them right in the name tag and tell them, hey, you, I see you. Thanks for being here today. We've grown tremendously over the last two years. You know this. And all that it's going to take for us to help create a ton of space for people and their kids and their families who are to come is for this. So uh, this isn't about numbers. It's just saying I want to do for someone else what's been done for me. And that's the kind of church we all want and want to be a part of. Amen? Amen? Amen. Amen. So would you stand with me this morning as we close? I want to pray for you. And then we'll be dismissed. Lord, I thank you for this, Lord, for the, the beauty of it, for the challenge of it, for the hope of it, that we've got an unbeatable move, we've got an ace in the hole in every relationship, just like you had. Well, thank you for being an example for us, we should do the same in our homes, for our spouses, for our friends, for our children, our communities in the world. Lord, give us grace to do this and be this and live this well before a watching world. We love you today. Thank you for being with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you for being here this morning. You're dismissed.